I want you to picture yourself on a busy subway station, waiting for the train. It's a crowded platform. You're looking around. And that's when you observe a man. He's an older man. Looks like he has one bad knee. He leans on the wall for support. He's dressed plainly, not rags, but not designer clothes either. He's like a modest guy. He's got one of those cheap black Casio watches on, nothing flashy. And, and here he's taking public transportation like everyone else. So as you see a guy like this, what do you think? What's your estimation of him? I mean, I guess he, he seems normal, right? Pretty simple, no one special, just an ordinary person. He's the type of guy that blends into a crowd. He comes, he goes, no one really notices. Seems like he's a guy that doesn't really leave much of an impact on the world around him. He's just, just normal. He may be nice, but he's not really special. He's no one significant. So you don't give him a second thought. But as the old saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. What if I told you that this unassuming man was Chuck Feeney? Well, probably doesn't mean anything to you. You probably never heard that name before. But Chuck Feeney is the world's most secretive billionaire. You know at the airport they have those duty-free shops? He's the guy who started that back in 1960. And so when all was said and done, I think he made around like $8 billion or something like that. But the amazing thing is he didn't lavish all this money on himself. He gave it all away. And I mean all of it. He gave it all away. Charities, universities, hospitals. Feeney himself grew up during the Great Depression, so he knew what it was like to work hard, to live frugally. He wanted to maintain a, a simple lifestyle, so he never owned a car. He takes public transportation. He flies coach. He wears a $15 Casio watch. He owns just a few pairs of shoes. He dresses modestly. And that scenario I gave you about seeing a guy in a subway station, that's taken from real life of sorts. And one day, he, he finished donating $170 million to university. And how did he go home? On the subway, just dressed like a normal guy. It's pretty amazing. But you couldn't tell his worth and his significance as a person just by looking at him. Because his lifestyle isn't great in the eyes of the world. Our world doesn't see him the way he lives as great. He doesn't live like a rich person. He's not flaunting it. He doesn't have the latest car or yacht or private jet. He doesn't wear designer clothing. He's not boasting of his achievements. And if you saw him, you'd just think he's an average guy. He's not great. You would not esteem him very highly. Instead, who are the great people in our world? Who does our world think that you, you must be great? It's the rich, the famous, the powerful. You've got to be rich, and you've got to live like you're rich if you are to be great. You've got to be famous, someone who's known by everybody, the actor, the athlete, the musician. You've got to be powerful, someone with authority over others. The president, the king, the ruler. These, these are the great people in our world. That's who we think is great. These people, they all wind up in one hall of fame or another. But not before God. If you were to look at God's Hall of Fame, you'd find very few rich, famous, and powerful people. Those who are great in this world most often end up not being so great in God's eyes. Instead, God regards the meek, the humble. It's just like Jesus said, that in God's kingdom it's actually different. Because many who are first in this world will be last, but many who are last will be first. And today in Mark's Gospel, we have a special passage that highlights this truth, the truth of this great reversal. And we come to a passage that features the ultimate nobody. This is a guy that everybody overlooked. 
Nobody paid attention to him. He just didn't exist. He wasn't rich. He was a beggar. He wasn't famous. He was invisible. And he wasn't powerful. He was blind. So that's just about as weak and powerless as you can get. He was totally ignored by society. Certainly he was no one great. It's not like Caesar the emperor or Herod the king or Caiaphas the high priest. It's not like them. But what if I told you that this guy was, he was actually great? And what if I told you he actually was greater than Caesar and Herod and Caiaphas? And what if I told you that God even used him as one of the greatest discipleship models ever, even for us today? Would you be shocked or intrigued or want to know how that can be? Well, we're going to find out certainly today in Mark chapter 10. This is the very end of Mark chapter 10, so you can open your Bibles and turn there now. The very end of Mark chapter 10. You'll find the story of Bartimaeus. This is the last incident recorded before Jesus enters Jerusalem and dies on the cross. This is also his last healing miracle, so it's the capstone of his earthly ministry before the cross. And in addition, this story is the culmination of everything Mark has been trying to say about faith and discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus on the way. You see, this is not just a story. This is a real event, like all of the events in Christ's life, but it was orchestrated by God and recorded by Mark for many reasons. And here Mark is trying to capture the benefit of this incident for us. For here we we are given really a perfect model for salvation, for discipleship. Ever since the end of Mark chapter 8, Mark has been largely trying to pass along all things related to faith and discipleship from Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. You must follow Jesus to be saved. But what does that really mean? How do you, how do, you do that? What does that look like? Well, he's been showing us through all these events in Christ's life, all these interchanges. We've seen a lot of negative examples, like the rich young ruler who was turned away from the way of the Lord. Even the 12 disciples, we've seen them stumble on their miscues. They're showing us a negative example. But here at the very end, before we enter that last week of his life, the Passion Week, this one story perfectly encapsulates everything God, through Mark, has been trying to teach us about our discipleship. It really is amazing how a 2,000-year-old story about a blind beggar can still change people's lives and affect us today. But it's true. It just goes to show you the power of God's Word. It's still living. It's active. It still instructs. It convicts. It saves. God wanted these recorded for a reason. And we certainly want to pay attention to that today. And so we'll be looking at, more, more closely, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And kind of like normal, we're going to read as we go. And just to help you follow along, I'll point out ten observations from this, this final story of Bartimaeus. Ten observations to help you follow along. And so let's get into it now, starting at verse 46. And we'll start with, number one, a depressing condition. It starts with, number one, a depressing condition. And let's read verse 46. It says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So we find ourselves in Jericho. This is the last stop before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. 
And you probably know Jericho. This isn't Old Testament Jericho. That city was destroyed. This is New Testament Jericho, which is really pretty much the same area. But it was rebuilt and turned into a desert paradise by the Romans. And they really decked it out. They built villas and baths, even an amphitheater. It was an oasis in the middle of the desert. They had streams and springs and aqueducts. So it flourished. The streets were lined with palm trees. It had a famous rose garden. It became a winter resort for kings. Think of the climate of Palm Springs in the winter. Just nice. That's Jericho. And Jericho is just 20 miles or so northeast of Jerusalem. And so thousands of Jews funneled through Jericho before Passover, especially because all the Jews in the north, they didn't want to go through Samaria. So they went east, crossed the Jordan, and then came around. And then to get back to Jerusalem, they would pass through Jericho. And so it was a major thoroughfare for Jews. And as we observe Jesus here in Jericho, how long till Passover? Well, just a week. So naturally, the city is swollen with pilgrims. And it's no surprise to find a huge crowd surrounding Jesus and his 12 disciples. It's a busy place. At this point, everybody knows who Jesus is. There's so many rumors and stories swirling about him. Some people are even even saying he might be the Messiah or the son of David. And so there's, there's a lot of excitement around Jesus as he's on his final march to Jerusalem, and especially in Jericho. And in the midst of this really busy scene, though, Mark turns our attention to just one guy, one person in, the, in this swarm of people there. And it's a beggar, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. He's sitting by the road. And as you reflect on this description of him, it's, it's kind of depressing. It's a depressing condition. And first and foremost, Bartimaeus was blind. And being blind is hard enough. Being blind in the ancient world is even harder. And being blind in the ancient world where everyone thinks you're, you're being judged by God, that's got to be the hardest. And that's, that's pretty much what the Jews believed, that if you were blind, you had done something to deserve it, and you were under divine punishment. You were cursed. And so they had very little compassion on you. Blind people were at the very bottom of society. They were lumped together with lepers and the crippled. You had no way to work, no way to support yourself, no life to live. All you could do is just beg for food and try and survive. That that was your life. It's a depressing condition for sure. It's no surprise to find out that second Bartimaeus was a beggar. And that almost goes without saying. In the ancient world, if you're blind, you're going to be a beggar. His only hope for survival was the occasional act of mercy by a passerby. Now, to increase your chances, though, if you're a beggar, where do you go? Well, you go to the road. You go to the main road through town, because that's your your best chance to see people or or to have people see you. And that's where we find him. Bartimaeus was not alone. There were other blind beggars around him. In fact, Matthew tells us he came with another guy. There were two of them. But they naturally made their way to the main road going in or out of the city. Especially at a time like this, it's Passover, there's thousands of people passing through. That's prime real estate. You've got to get to that main road. If you're a beggar, it's your best chance of getting more donations. Now real quick, speaking of going in or out of the city, one little issue, Matthew and Mark, they describe this event as taking place as Jesus was leaving Jericho. But Luke sounds, makes it sound like Jesus was approaching Jericho when this took place. A lot of people wonder about it. I'll just briefly mention that the best, the best answer is simply that the word 
Luke uses simply means in the vicinity of Jericho, which kind of solves it right there. I just want to throw that out there in case you know what I'm talking about without getting into many more details. We're not going to get into it. But anyway, first we encounter Bartimaeus, and his life is not a pretty picture. In fact, it's an outright depressing condition. Certainly, he's no one great. He's not a great person. He's no one special. He's not a significant person, just a guy by the side of the road. No one special, at least not yet. Next, let's, let's observe number two, a deep insight. Secondly, a deep insight. Verse 47. Sitting by the side of the road, and when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let me just try and paint the picture here. It was a normal day for Bartimaeus. He woke up, probably after sleeping outside somewhere. His hair is, is disheveled. He's, he smells. He's unshaven. He's, his clothes are tattered. He's living the life of a beggar. At least he wasn't alone. According to Matthew, there's another blind guy with them. They're probably safer as a pair. And together they made their way to the edge of town, to the main road to take up their position by the side of the road to beg. And with amazing memory, he navigates his way through town. Maybe he's got a makeshift walking stick. We don't know. But he gets to that familiar spot by the side of the road, the place he always goes, and he starts to beg. It's a busy day. There's lots of excitement. He can hear the hustle and bustle of the city all around him. Passover is so near, so there's a constant stream of people on this road. And the sounds and the smells of donkeys and horses and carts and merchants and slaves, soldiers, children, Levites, all around him. And he starts to beg, and he's just one more noise in this crowd. But suddenly things change. Bartimaeus can tell by the sound that something's coming. Someone's coming. There's a real commotion. He hears people running ahead. There's some shouting, some yelling. The crowd starts to swell. It sounds like someone important is on the way. So he asks someone coming by. He says, what's going on? Who's coming? And passerby says, literally, it is Jesus the Nazarene. He's coming. And Bartimaeus thinks, Jesus the Nazarene, I I know him. I've heard heard that name before. I've heard some stories about him. I've heard that, that he heals people. I've even heard that he heals the blind. We surmise Bartimaeus thinking. So how does Bartimaeus respond when he hears that Jesus the Nazarene is going to pass by any moment? Well, he cries out, and the word in verse 47 means it's a loud shout. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And with this cry, we find from Bartimaeus actually a rather deep insight As one commentator said, what he lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. And particularly, how does Bartimaeus identify Jesus? He says, Jesus, son of David. And that's huge. Everybody understood that the title son of David at that time referred to the coming Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one whose kingdom would have no end. Just think about this. Did the twelve disciples believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of David, Christ? Yes, they did. By now they did. They had come to confess him openly as the Christ. But it took them some time. It took them some time to really firmly be convinced that he was the Christ. And just no more doubts. They believe it. But here's this blind man, Bartimaeus. He's never seen Jesus. 
He's never witnessed a miracle like the disciples did. He's never even heard him speak. He only knows about Jesus through second-hand information, kind of like us, going off of someone else's information, the Bible. Yet with great faith, he pieced it all together and he believed that this Jesus guy, he's got to be the Christ, the son of David. I mean, being blind, he had nothing really to do oftentimes but sit and think. He was confined to his thoughts a lot of the time, but that served him well. Because even though he was blind, he immediately saw what so many other people failed to see. He, he must have surmised if Jesus, if this guy Jesus, he says these things, if he really says these things and he's really doing these things, then he has to be the son of David, the Messiah. He, he must be the Christ. And what do you know? This blind man was right. The one who never even saw Jesus got his identity right right away. He had a deep insight. And with faith, he cried out to Jesus, for perhaps he also knew that according to Isaiah 61, verse 1, that when the Messiah comes, he will, among other things, give sight to the blind. And so he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. This leads to number three, a desperate plea. A desperate plea. And with this cry, Son of David, have mercy on me, it's, it's a desperate plea, which is fitting because Bartimaeus is desperate. He's a blind beggar. He has no hope in the world. He lives a miserable existence. But he acknowledges his desperation and also his unworthiness. Bartimaeus does not come entitled before Jesus as if he deserves anything, as if Jesus owes him anything. He doesn't say, Jesus, you've got to heal me. I mean, come on. If anyone has suffered, it's me. You owe this to me. If anyone deserves something good to happen to them, it's me. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just asks for mercy. And implicit in any request for mercy, it's an admission that it's something you don't deserve. You're asking for something you don't deserve. And Bartimaeus knew he could not buy Christ's favor or his healing. He could not earn it. He did not deserve it. But that didn't stop him from pleading for mercy anyway. He figuratively flung himself to the feet of Jesus, just banking on the hope that he would be a compassionate son of David. He was desperate. But not just desperate, he was also determined. Number four, it's a determined plea. A determined plea. And look at verse 48. As he's crying out, it says, Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus was planted by the side of the road. Meanwhile, the, the crowd was swelling. More people were rushing by. People were packed together. They were shouting. It was noisy. Jesus was a spectacle. People wanted to watch. Something might happen. Nobody wanted to miss out. So when Bartimaeus starts shouting at the top of his lungs, the people in the crowd, they get annoyed. He's bothering them. Remember, they had little compassion for the blind, for the beggars. They had become hardened to seeing people like Bartimaeus by the side of the road. And they were not about to let him bother Jesus or detract from their experience. So they literally tell him to shut up. Just stop yelling. Just quiet. But Bartimaeus, he acts as if not only he can't see them, but also he can't hear them. Because he doesn't care. He disregards them trying to shut him up. 
I mean, what has he got to lose? He's desperate. A little opposition is not going to keep him away from, from crying out. This may be his only chance to have an encounter with Jesus. Who knows? Jesus might never again pass through Jericho. And he wouldn't. So he, he's not going to be stopped. He's determined. He keeps crying out even louder. In verse 48, that the verb tense pictures a continual action. He's just over and over. He's now shouting louder. He doesn't care what the people are saying to him. He's like, Son of David, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Over and over again. He doesn't care. Remember, he can't see. So he can't actually tell when Jesus is passing by. He doesn't know, like, is he a mile away? Is he, like, 15 feet away? He doesn't know when Jesus will actually pass by in front of him. So it's like he's covering his bases. He just keeps shouting, just in case, just, just so that when Jesus actually passes by, maybe he'll hear him. Maybe he'll be in range. And what do you know? Jesus does hear him. Number five, a decided call. A decided call. Verse 49 And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. It's quite amazing when you think about it, because given the circumstances, we don't expect Jesus to stop for anything. We've already learned he's on that road to Jerusalem. This is the final road. He's not stopping. He he knows he's going to his death, but he's determined to get there. And we got the impression that nothing was going to stop his, his path. But yet we see that the cries of this blind beggar literally stop him in his tracks. Jesus comes to a screeching halt, and so, do, so does the crowd around him. And he issues this command. He says, call him here. And surely tons of people were crying out to Jesus while he was on this road. So, so why here? Why is he stopping here? Why now? Well, probably because he could discern the earnestness and the faith behind this man's messianic plea. This is a real person who is in real need, who really believed Jesus was the Messiah and that he could help. And Jesus, he's going to stop for that every time. The crowd also has an about face. They go from trying to shut Bartimaeus up to excitedly telling him, hey, he's calling you. We get the impression they know what, what might happen. They know Jesus has healed blind people before, and they're, they want to see a spectacle. So they encourage Bartimaeus. The call is issued, and Bartimaeus immediately responds. Number six, a direct response. A direct response, verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Everything about his initial response portrays an expectant faith. Bartimaeus displays a recklessness here that otherwise we might describe as foolish, as irresponsible. You know, look, this, this cloak, this outer mantle, that was like your most needed garment. You only have one, there's no backups. It kept you warm at night, you, you desperately needed this outer mantle. And for beggars sleeping on the streets, outside, you, you really need it. But Bartimaeus, he throws it aside as if not wanting it to slow him down as he runs to Jesus. But again, this, this doesn't seem wise because for a blind man, he might not find it again. But he doesn't care. He's been called by Jesus and he directly responds with an eagerness and an expectancy that can only be explained by faith. Just as Simon and Andrew left their nets, James and John left their boat, Matthew left the tax booth, 
So Bartimaeus, he leaves the only thing he possesses just to answer the call of Jesus. He springs up like he's still a young man and he somehow makes his way to Jesus. I'm sure the crowd helped him navigate his way. And now we find a question. Number seven, a decisive question. A decisive question, verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? Now stop there. Off the bat, this might seem like a dumb question. I mean, especially coming from Jesus, it's like, why would you ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? It's like, well, no doubt, he's going to want his sight back. It's kind of obvious, so why would you ask him that? It seems like a no-brainer, but Jesus asked this question for a very purposeful reason. This question is designed to draw out Bartimaeus' faith. He's going to be forced to articulate his faith in Jesus. That's why he asks. How much did he think Jesus was capable of, or how little? What did he think Jesus could do for him? As is so often the case, Jesus prods people and probes people as if to force their hidden faith to be revealed. Even today, God knows our requests, but he still tells us to ask. God still wants us to pray, to ask him our requests, even though he already knows, right? But this too, in part, is designed to draw out our faith in a tangible way. Do you really have faith? Then will you really ask? Bartimaeus was ready to, to respond. And he does so, number eight, a distinguishing answer. A distinguishing answer. Back to verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. I want to regain my sight. Like we said, no surprise here. He wanted his sight back. It's pretty obvious, but there is a surprise. First, we see that Bartimaeus addresses Jesus with a special title, Rabboni. This is a more reverent form of the word rabbi, which itself means teacher or master. It shows that Bartimaeus holds Jesus in the highest regard as a teacher, which, again, it's surprising. He's never seen Jesus. He's never heard Jesus, all secondhand. He's merely heard the exploits, but he believed. But what's also striking here is the contrast between whom? Between Bartimaeus and the disciples. Did you notice? Look at verse 51. Look at this question that Jesus asks. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Does that ring a bell? Where have we heard that exact same question before? Well, look back at verse 36. Mark chapter chapter 10, just from a couple Sundays ago, we find the exact same question. Although first time it was asked to James and John. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. But notice how different the response is. I do believe that's an intended contrast. You remember what, what James and John, what did they want from Jesus? They wanted glory. They wanted the power, the prestige. They wanted this superhuman power. What does Bartimaeus want? He just wants eyesight. He doesn't want to be superhuman. He just wants to be human. He just wants what everyone else already has. He's not asking for glory or status or exaltation or riches, fame or honor. I mean, he's a beggar, so why not throw in a request for some money at least? 
But he just desperately wants out of his world of darkness. He just wants the light. That's all he wants. And at the same time, Bartimaeus knows he doesn't deserve anything. He's not laying a claim on glory or greatness like James and John did. They felt very entitled to that glory, but he's, he's not claiming anything. He's just looking for some mercy and only enough to give him what everyone else already has, eyesight. It's a distinguishing answer in the sense that it distinguishes him even from Christ's own disciples. From Bartimaeus, we find a humbler answer and even a greater faith. A greater faith. That leads to number nine, a definite faith. Number nine, a definite faith. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight. You can stop there. It's pretty amazing. I mean, look, I know we've seen this so many times in Mark's gospel, we can take it for granted, but this is another amazing miracle, a, a healing. With this divine power, Jesus touches out, reaches out and touches his eyes. That's according to Matthew. He did touch his eyes. And Bartimaeus' eyesight is completely restored. There's no surgery. There's no medicine. There's no recovery time. He doesn't need reading glasses afterward, like LASIK. He just experienced a full and final and instantaneous healing. Just done. You're healed. At the beginning of Christ's sentence, he was still trapped in this world of darkness. But by the end of the sentence, after he touched him, his eyes were opened and light flooded in. And the difference was the power of God working through his faith in Jesus. God can do anything he pleases, but he is pleased to work through our faith to accomplish his will. And so we can say that Bartimaeus' faith was the subjective means of his healing. He was healed because of his faith in a human sense. He had a right view of himself as desperately lost. He had a right view of Jesus. He is the Messiah who can save and heal. And he had a right response. He just cried out for mercy in faith. Of course, Jesus and his divine power are the objective means of this healing. That's why God ultimately gets all the glory. But Bartimaeus even got this right too. Because in the parallel in Luke chapter 18, verse 43, says that after he was healed, he immediately began to glorify God. He knew he just received grace. It wasn't him. It was just God that healed him. And he gives him the glory. That's not quite the end. Let's finish verse 52. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. This leaves us with, lastly, number 10, a discipleship model. A discipleship model. And here's where we really start getting into the purpose of this account in Mark's gospel. God orchestrated this event, and Mark recorded this event, in large part to provide us with the perfect discipleship model. Because after Bartimaeus is healed, what does he do? He immediately begins following Jesus and Isn't that what disciples are supposed to do? Isn't that like the definition of a disciple? And for Bartimaeus, we can surmise that he didn't stop following Jesus. This is not just a casual commitment for him. This was a new life. And how how can we say that? 
Well, in particular, because his name is recorded. We know his name. And you're thinking, well, okay, what's the big deal? What actually is the big deal in Mark's gospel? It's extremely significant because no names are recorded of people that Jesus heals. Just think about it. So far in Mark, this is the last healing, so we've seen them all now. We've seen many healings, but how many names? None. There's the man with the unclean spirit, the leper, the paralytic, the man with the withered hand, the garrison demoniac, the man with the hemorrhage, the Syrophoenician woman, the blind man, the demon-possessed son, the daughter of Jairus, not Jairus, but his daughter. None of these names, no names are recorded, just people and their description. So why is Bartimaeus' name recorded? Well, almost certainly because later he became a prominent member of the early church. That's why names were written down. When Mark wrote his gospel decades later, Bartimaeus was probably still around, probably still alive, still an active member of the early church, still following Jesus. Can't be dogmatic, but it certainly would be fitting because discipleship is for life. When you start following, if you're a real disciple, you never stop following. And in more ways than one, Bartimaeus serves as a discipleship model for us. His story perfectly pictures what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, from salvation to discipleship. And I'm not just making that up because it sounds nice. There are actually clues in the text that lead us to believe that Mark is communicating this to us, that he's recording this God-orchestrated event to show us, first, here's a model of salvation, and then second, here's a model of discipleship. So let's reflect on that now. Let's start with Bartimaeus as a model of salvation. And you look at verse 52. You notice when Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. Now that word for made you well, it's sozo in the Greek. It's the same word for, for being saved, for salvation. So literally he said, your faith has saved you. And there's another word Jesus could have used if he wanted to just talk about exclusive physical healing. But he chose this word as if to, to show, to indicate that what was happening to Bartimaeus' body was also happening to his soul as well. He gives us this picture of salvation. Think about this. What was his initial condition? He's blind. He's desperate. He's hopeless. Living in darkness. And according to scripture, that's the same as our initial spiritual condition. We're living in the kingdom of darkness. We're blind to God. We're enslaved to sin. We're hopeless. This is a condition we cannot correct ourselves. Just like Bartimaeus could not make his eyesight come back. He didn't have that power. He was just desperate. He needed someone to change him. Same for us. But then remember Bartimaeus' cry when he heard about Jesus. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So look, he got Jesus right. He went to the right person. He knew and he believed that Jesus really was the Messiah, the Savior, the only one who could heal him. And indeed, just a week later, the basis of Bartimaeus' forgiveness and all of our forgiveness would be accomplished as Jesus died on the cross. He died to take our place, to pay for our sins that we might be redeemed. And rising from the dead, Jesus offers a new life to anyone who would respond to his call. But even this, Bartimaeus models for us because he got the response to Jesus right. He simply begged for mercy. That's all you can do. Just beg for mercy. Bartimaeus knew he had nothing to offer, nothing to bring, 
no merit, no payment, no good works, nothing. He's just desperate. He knows he's blind and lost, just asking for a little bit of mercy, which he knows he doesn't even deserve, but he still asks. And he's determined. He's asking over and over until he, he hears an answer. He realized today was the day of salvation, may not get another chance, so he's not going to stop. This is exactly what God wants from us as well. We can do absolutely nothing to change our own lost and blind condition. All we can do is cry out to the Savior in faith for mercy that he might have compassion on us and save us. But the good news is Jesus listens and he promises to answer that that call every time. He is a compassionate and merciful Savior and and just as Jesus stopped in his tracks to answer Bartimaeus' cry, he promises to stop to hear always those who cry out to him in faith for mercy. Furthermore, Jesus still calls. He still summons people to himself. And without this call, we all remain paralyzed by the side of the road. But when he calls, we spring to life. We come to him. He elicits our faith. And it is then on the basis of this faith, humanly speaking, that he saves us. He lifts the veil from our eyes. He transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Jesus is still the cure for spiritual blindness. And we're all just like Bartimaeus. Blind, sitting by the side of the road, hopeless. But Jesus is the only one who can make you well. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And for us now, this this same salvation is still available. But it requires one thing, namely humility. Humility. Humility to see your own lost and hopeless and desperate condition. And that's so essential because only those who are desperate will cry out for mercy. And only those who cry out for mercy will hear an answer. And it starts with your humility over your own condition. If you come before God, you think you're good enough. think you, you've done enough good things. You have enough good works. You're, you're, you're good enough for him. You've got another thing coming to you. Rather, it's only when you come to terms with the fact that you're, you're dead in your sin. You're a, re- a rebel against God. You, you deserve a just judgment. Only then will you be desperate enough to just ask for mercy. I don't deserve this. I deserve judgment. But Lord, can I just have some mercy? Only when you're humble do you become desperate. Only when you're desperate do you cry out for mercy. Only then does God promise to hear you. This in part explains one of the great scandals of the gospel. Just think about Jesus. He too came in humility. He was lowly. He was meek himself. In the very next passage in Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem as who? As the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the son of David. But how does he ride into town? On a stallion? No, on a donkey. And he's not coming carrying a sword. He's not a military general. He's not, he's not great in the eyes of the world. He's not a great person to the world. In fact, he's weak. He even dies on a cross. But through Christ's great humiliation came an even greater exaltation. And that's just the way of the Lord. God's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Jesus first. He humbled himself. This also explains the great reversal we mentioned earlier. Because not only was it a scandal, 
that the Messiah would come not in greatness but in meekness. It's also a scandal that the meek and the humble would inherit the kingdom while the, the great, the powerful, they would be kept out of the kingdom. And just think in Mark's gospel so far, who do we find as receiving salvation? Who, who receives it? It's all the nobodies. All the nobodies. Sinners, fishermen, tax collectors, lepers, the crippled, the blind, even a condemned thief on the cross. Meanwhile, who is kept out of the kingdom? Herod the king, Pilate the governor, Caiaphas the high priest, the Pharisees, all the religious authorities and leaders of Israel. If you're rich and powerful, the rich young ruler, kept out. And it's so incredulous to think that these great people, these are great people in the world, but they find no place in God's kingdom and salvation. Rather, a bunch of nobodies. They're nobody in this life, but they find a way in. And they become greater than all in the kingdom. This is the great reversal, that many who are first shall be last, last shall be first. And the hinge, again, is humility. So many in the world are too proud for the kingdom. They're too proud to see themselves accurately, which is to say as hopelessly lost sinners, rebels against God, who have a just judgment, and there's nothing they can do. They deserve judgment. But because of this pride, they never cry out for mercy. And they never find mercy. And so they're kept out. And meanwhile, the humble, the broken, the desperate, they do cry out and God promises to hear them and He saves them. Heaven will be filled with nobodies in this world. But God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace, saving grace even, to the humble. And certainly that includes Bartimaeus. Such a contrast. Here is a blind beggar but he sees Jesus more clearly than anyone else around him. While just a few days later, here's blind beggar confessing Jesus as the son of David. Just a few days later, all the, the most powerful people in Jerusalem, the Romans, the Jews, they kill Jesus for claiming to be the son of David. And what about you? What do you make of Jesus? Does your pride keep you away? For there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that which are strong. And the question is, will you be among the weak and the foolish for Jesus? Like I said, we find first from Bartimaeus, there's a perfect picture of salvation. He models for us what it looks like to, to enter the kingdom, to be a disciple. And after that, secondly, lastly now, he also models for us discipleship. And let's finish by reflecting on this. He's also the perfect model of discipleship. If you genuinely turn to Jesus in faith, he promises to save you, to change you. And then what will be the result? If you're real, you will, like Bartimaeus, you will start following Jesus. Did you notice the beginning position of Bartimaeus? Look at verse 46. How does he start off? He's sitting by the side of the road. He's not on the road. He's sitting on the sidelines. But what is his ending position? And again, I I do believe this is intentional. Verse 52. He began following Jesus on the road. Now he's an active participant. Now he's a follower. He's a disciple. 
And this becomes extra significant when you realize that this is actually a special theme in Mark. See that word for road? Verse 46, verse 52. Hodas in the Greek, it's the word for road or the way. That one of the major thrusts of Mark's gospel is to show us what that means. Namely, the road of the Lord or the way of the Lord. That's what he's trying to show us. Remember how Mark opened the very beginning. I'll read it for you. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And Mark shows us how Jesus leads that way. Jesus came leading the way, showing the way of the Lord, the way of salvation. And all who are to be saved must likewise follow Jesus on his way. Hence, the central verse in the whole book, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Follow me where? On the way. The way of the Lord. And it's no coincidence that right before that monumental verse, back in verse 27 of chapter 8, we get the first bold confession from the disciples that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. That's what this way is about. You don't follow Jesus just because he's a nice guy, just because he, he does some miracles, he can give you a better life. You follow him because he's the Messiah. He's the Lord and Savior. And that's why you're on his way. But as we continue to see, the disciples, they don't have it all figured out. They still get some things wrong about what it means to follow Jesus on his way. And so in chapters 10 and 11, we see them stumble on the way, so much so that as they are following Jesus on his way, they start, what, arguing among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. They're on his way, they're following the Lord, but they're arguing about their greatness. It's like, no, that's not what the way of the Lord is all about. Jesus corrects them. It's not about being served, but about serving others. And so much of what we've seen in Mark actually fits into this grander theme of the way of the Lord. But it culminates with Bartimaeus. This is it. This is the culmination before we get into the Passion Week. He's the last healing in Mark's Gospel. He's the last salvation story. And he's the last one to hop on the way and follow Jesus before the cross. But here, as if to show us what it's all about, we get the perfect picture. The perfect picture. It's like you. You're lost. Jesus finds you. You're blind. He gives you sight. And then what do you do? You immediately and permanently follow him on his way. Bartimaeus' story makes it clear. There's no other way. If you claim Christ, but you don't follow him, you're not a disciple. You, you can't be saved. And true disciples will follow no matter what. If that means living differently than the world, so be it. If that means dying to sin and self, so be it. If that even means enduring persecution and suffering, so be it. The disciple will follow his Savior no matter what. And indeed, just think, where did Bartimaeus follow Jesus? He gets healed, he gets saved, he starts following Jesus. Where was Jesus going? From Jericho to Jerusalem. And just a week later to the cross. Just imagine that. You've only had eyesight for one week, but then you get to witness 
your Savior killed on a cross. If I were a betting man, I would wager that Bartimaeus also, though, witnessed the resurrection. I would bet that he was among the 120 in the upper room or the 500 witnesses who saw Christ live again. But we've seen it so many times. The cross must come before the crown. Bartimaeus witnessed that with his own new eyes. Christ suffered before he entered into glory. And as his disciples, that's our way too. We will one day follow him into resurrection glory. But for now, we're on the road marked with suffering. Bartimaeus followed Christ nonetheless. The only question left is, do you follow? Do you really aim to live your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ? You'll follow him wherever he leads. You just want his will for your life. You want to go his path no matter what. There's no other way. And for those of us who are on the way, although it can be difficult, what can we do but thank and praise God? Because even though the way of Jesus is marked with suffering, it ends in glory. And it's all by God's grace. I mean, what do we deserve? We were all just like Bartimaeus. Blind beggars, lost, desperate, hopeless. But God saved us. God showed us grace. He called us into his kingdom. For this we will follow. For this we will give him glory. You remember the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see pray. Lord, we reflect on this passage and even the the words of that cherished hymn and how true they are. We can sing that loud and clear, Lord, from, from hearts that mean it and believe it. We confess we were lost and blind, but only by your grace and through Christ, activated by our faith, we were found and we, we, were, we come to see, to see you and your glory. Continually forgive us of our sins, Lord, but we thank you for Christ dying on the cross. We paid the ultimate price, the ultimate forgiveness. It's already been done, accomplished. Nothing more can be added to it. And in him we have this full and final forgiveness, even a new life, a new birth. How can we not thank you? How can we not, like Bartimaeus, glorify you, one who has saved us from darkness? And we do that now. We lift up your name in praise. But also, how can we not follow you on the way? You still leave us here. We're still on earth. We still have a life to live, but Lord, now we resolve to live that on your way, on your path, following Christ and the way he leads us. Make that clear to us. Show us the way of the Lord. When we stumble, help us to repent quickly and get back on the way and pursue you with a passion, living for your glory. It's what it's about. We look forward to an eternity with you, to the glory we will share with you, which you promised by your grace. But for now, we, we aim, we resolve to follow the Lord on the way, to make much of his name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.